The following message is presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Now the message. If you would uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We'll be looking in a few moments at the uh, end of that chapter in Luke's Gospel. I don't know if you've ever struggled with the idea of being good enough. It's a constant struggle for me. My personality is made up to be a pleaser. That's the way God made me, and so I want to please everybody. And when I please everybody, I get the pat on the back, I get the attaboy, and I feel like I'm good enough. Maybe you're that way too. I think there's probably a truth that all of us desire to be good enough. Maybe it's as a student in school, we want to have grades that are good enough. Now, for some of us, that's an A. For others of us, it's anything other than a failing grade. But the subjectiveness of good enough is that we still want to be good enough. Maybe it's after school, when we get our first job, and we're in our employment, we want our boss to look upon us and say to us that we're good enough. We want to know that we've done a good enough job. Most employers have a time where you're evaluated, and when you go through that evaluation process, you want to know that you're good enough. Maybe it's in our relationship with our spouse. We want to make sure that our relationship is firing on all cylinders and everything is going good. And part of that is for us to be good enough at loving our spouse. Maybe it's in our role as a parent that as we raise our kids, we want to know that what we've accomplished when they graduate high school, college, master's, doctorate, whatever that last degree is when we get them off of the payroll, those of you who have kids tell me that does someday happen, right? They do get off the payroll. And we want to know that we've been a good parent and that we raised them in a way that was good enough. I think it's intrinsic in us. We, we want to succeed and we want to get the, the pat on the back. We want to know that what we did was indeed good enough. And so... Uh, This morning, as you turn to Luke chapter 5, I want to set the stage with three stories that are not in Luke chapter 5, but they're going to serve as a backdrop for us as we look at Luke chapter 5. The first thing I want to share with you is a Greek proverb. Now, this Greek proverb is not biblical. This does not come from biblical Greek. This just comes from the same time period. And a Greek proverb says this. Blessed are old people who plant trees knowing that they shall never sit in the shade of its foliage. Do you understand that proverb? It's saying that trees take time to grow. And blessed are people who have reached a point in life, but yet they're still giving, still planting trees, even though they know they're never going to sit under the shade of that tree. That proverb was... Uh, used as the basis of a sermon 150 years ago, almost 160 years ago, by a preacher in in, uh, Europe who was preaching and teaching that churches need to be planting trees 
for people who are yet to come. Let me share a second thought with you. In the Old Testament, there was a king. His name was Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah was known as being one of the better kings in Judah. And as such, he had an illness and he prayed and he asked God to give him more time. That God would heal him of his illness. And in Isaiah chapters 37 and 38, Hezekiah prays and God grants him more years. In fact, he's specific. And God says, I will give you 15 more years. And as proof of that, look at the sun as a shadow is falling on those stairs. And it will back up 10 stairs to prove to you that my word will be held. Then we turn to chapter 39. One chapter later. What does Hezekiah do with this new life that he's been given? He invites one of his adversaries to come and see all that God is doing and how God is blessing him and making him good as a king and extending his time that he would be good enough in their sight. And Isaiah speaks a word to him and he says to him, what you have done is foolish. For that king will one day come and plunder the palace and the temple. And he will take away your children, the very children you bear, and take them into captivity. And Hezekiah's response at the end of chapter 39 is this one verse. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word which the Lord has spoken through you is good. You might say good enough. Because in my days, there will be peace and truth. And Hezekiah only looks at his own lifetime. He says, God's promised me 15 more years. So if the kingdom is plundered, if the kingdom falls, if my descendants are taken into captivity, that's God's plan for them. That's okay, because it's been good enough for me. With those stories in the backdrop, let's turn our attention now to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read a lengthy passage to get the context of what we're looking at. We're going to zero in on the final few verses of Luke chapter 5. But bear with me as we begin in verse 29 uh, to give you the greater context. So this is still the beginning of Jesus's ministry. In chapter three, um, we see that Jesus has been baptized. In chapter four, he has his first miracle uh, and, and he begins to call his disciples to him and they begin to follow him. There's more miracles, more healings. And the Pharisees and the scribes are beginning to ask questions about this new rabbi, this new teacher and what he's teaching. And so we pick it up there in verse 29. Jesus has just called Levi, the tax collector, to follow him. And Levi responds by having a big party. So in verse 29, Levi gave a big reception for him, that's Christ, Jesus, in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and he said to them, Is it not those who are, uh, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick? Verse 32, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the scribes and the Pharisees step back and they now say to him in verse 33, The disciples of John 
often fast and offer prayers. But your disciple and the disciples of the Pharisees do the same. But yours, they eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendant of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. And this is where we're going to focus in. This is our key passage today. He was telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. Verse 38, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Heavenly Father, in these next few moments, God, I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, that it wouldn't be my words that are heard, it would be your words spoken to your people. God, I pray that we would seek not to be just good enough. But Father, we would do what you call us to do, no matter the cost. So speak to our hearts in these moments, God. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Levi, the tax collector, is having a gathering. Think of it this way. Somebody comes to your church, an adult, they hear the gospel, they respond, they're baptized, and they say to Brother Bo and to the deacons, Hey, come over to my house. I'm going to invite my friends to the house, and I want them to see this good thing that has happened to me. Now, here's the problem. If an adult has been a sinner, who do you think they've been hanging out with? They've been hanging out with other sinners. Now, if we're evangelistically minded, we ought to see Jesus' words of the fields are white unto harvest. Here is one whose life has been changed, introducing us to others who need their lives changed. But so many times... We look at it this way. Woo. You know, those people are the ones that go down there and they drink that stuff and they do those things and we don't do those things. So, Levi, you just come back over to my house. You, you come where it's safe for me and you come where it's comfortable for me. And so you just come join me. That's, that's how the Pharisees were responding. They were looking at it and saying, this guy, he's a tax gatherer. We don't want to have anything to do with him. And we certainly don't want to infringe upon the customs of our day and our time and those of us who have worked to gain a place of notoriety in the synagogue. We don't want to go there. It's okay for Levi, not what we like, but it's okay if Levi's had this big transformation and he wants to come to the synagogue. But we don't want to go there. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, it says, the Pharisees and the scribes, they turn to Jesus and they say, why is it that you guys are associating with the tax gatherers and the sinners? And the Pharisees are asking this question. Are those people good enough? Are they good enough for you to hang around with them? Are they good enough that they would be allowed to be in the presence of this new teacher? 
And Jesus responds almost saying these words. It's not what he says, but if we were to read into the passage, I think we would see Jesus saying when he says it's not the well who need the doctor, but it's the sick who need the doctor. He'd be saying to them, the reason they're here is because, no, they're not good enough. So we move to this next little paragraph in our passage. He's talking about the the Pharisees and the scribes. They're not happy with the response of Jesus almost insinuating that those whom they know to be not good enough are good, good enough to be in their presence. And so then they turn to another tack and they say, well, but John's and John would have been the one who baptized Jesus, John the baptizer. They say John's disciples, they obey our traditions and our rules and they fast. And the Pharisees say, oh, and by the way. We do as well. And our disciples do. And then they turn to Jesus and say, but yours, yours don't follow our traditions. Yours don't do what we do. And Jesus, at that point, is being asked the question of, are your disciples good enough? You see, the Pharisees want to point out that Others know how to follow the rituals. But Jesus' disciples seem to be having too much fun going to the party. And Jesus responds that the ritual at a wedding feast, you suspend those rituals. It's too much joy at a wedding to fast. And it's okay at that time. But the time will come when you can fast. And the disciples, the actions of the disciples are warranted. Because of the superseding activity of the ministry and the forgiveness of sinners. And this brings us to the heart of the passage that we're looking at today. In this context, Jesus knew in ministry, being questioned about whether or not the people are good enough, whether or not the disciples are good enough, Jesus then begins to give them a parable to explain it, a story. So beginning in verse 36, Jesus uses two illustrations. The first illustration he uses is of a cloth. And he says, if you have a hole in your garment, you don't go ruin a new garment and tear it up in order to put a patch on the old garment. Because if you do, then when the new patch shrinks over time, it will pull away and make the old garment worse. And you still have now a hole in your new garment. In other words, he's saying this, if you've got two shirts, a new one and an old one, and the old one gets a hole in it, don't go cut a piece of cloth from the new one and put it over the old one so you can keep wearing your old favorite shirt. Because if you do, you've just ruined the new shirt and it won't last in your old shirt. It will pull away and break. He gives him a second picture, another word picture in this parable. And he says in the same way, nobody takes... New wine and pours it into an old wineskin. Now, we're not familiar with that terminology. Unless we've studied this passage, we're not really familiar with what Jesus is talking about. But in Jesus' day, they would take the fresh grapes, they would crush them, and they, they would get the juice out of them. Then that juice would need to be stored. And the juice would be stored by putting it into a skin, oftentimes a goat skin, that would be formed into a flask. Now, there's two different kinds. There was a small one that somebody would carry with them, but that one tended to be already with old stuff in it. 
It would be reused, kind of like a canteen. But there's also the skin that would hold the, the vat of juice. So as they harvest the grapes and they squish the juice and crush the, the grapes and the juice comes out, they would need to put that in something larger. And often it was the entire skin of an animal that had been harvested from the animal and used to hold that juice. And over time, what happens to the juice is because there's no refrigeration and it sits out in the open air, it begins to go through the process of fermentation. In the process of fermentation, there's a chemical reaction that takes place and the juice expands. If it's sealed up tight, it's going to expand. And Jesus says, if you take and put new wine, new juice, unfermented juice, and you put it into an old skin, you've got a problem. Why? Because the skin, when it's new, is flexible, it's pliable, and it stretches. But once it stretches, it becomes molded into that shape and becomes an old skin. If you try to put more new juice into that skin, it can't stretch anymore. It can't flex anymore. And it's going to burst. And it's going to cause you to lose both the juice and the skin. And so he says, if you've got new juice, you've got to put it into a new skin that can flex. Now, here's the thing. Is that old skin bad? Is there something wrong with that old skin? No. The old skin is good for a purpose. It was good in its younger days to be flexible, pliable, filled with new things of that day and that generation. And it stretched as far as it could stretch. And it served its purpose in that context. The only thing it can hold after that is more old stuff, more old wine, more old juice. If you try to put new into it, it's going to break. And he says, but you're going to run out of old stuff, right? Because you've got all the old stuff stored and you're using it. And at some point you're going to run out of that old stuff. And you're going to need to replace it with new stuff. And if you try to put the new stuff into that old skin, it's not going to work. It's going to break. It won't be good enough. Now, you're probably already, having been with us on Wednesday nights, hearing what we're talking about in revitalization, you're probably already connecting some of the dots of what I'm saying this morning. But there's one more verse in this passage. It's a verse that I read for the first time this week. And I, and I had not, I mean, I'm sure I've read this verse, but it never registered until this week. The beauty of this last verse. And so when we look at the last verse of chapter 5, verse 39, it says this. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wishes for the new wine. Because he says, the old is good enough. Now for me, being a pleaser, always desiring to be good enough, whoo, those words jumped off the page at me. How many times in my life have I calculated before taking a test, if I just make a 63 on this test, I pass the course, it will be good enough. How many times did I joke with my friend that last semester of college? You know what the letter D stands for? Diploma. It was good enough. 
How many times in my work life did I say, well, I got to be there by 7 a.m., but if I can get there at 6.59, that's good enough. How many times in my life have I stepped back and settled and said, here's the mark, I just want to be good enough. And so when this, when I read this verse, I said, whoa, Lord, I don't like that verse. And I began to chew on the words of this verse. And in more than 25 years of preaching, this verse came alive to me this week for the very first time. And there's two words I want you to see in this verse. The the first word I want you to see is desire. Desire. He says, anyone who has tasted of the old wine no longer desires the new. It's not what we want. We've Now, there's a lot of reasons we could go into that, and we're not going to go into that today. But we don't want the, the juice. Once we've had the wine, we don't want to go back to the juice. And in life and in ministry and in church, sometimes once we have gotten established in our routines, in our structures, in our traditions, in what's comfortable to us, once we've got that all fixed the way we like it, if we're honest, if I'm honest, I don't always have the desire to change it. We sit underneath Bright white lights today. How long have you thought about changing those lights before you changed the lights? And how long did you come in and did, I'm not going to ask for raising their hands, but did anybody come in and say, at the cost of those new lights, you know, the old ones were good enough. You see, our way we're all made is to, to seek out comfort and ease. And, and the danger is that once we get so established in what's comfortable and easy, we have a loss of desire for something new that's hard, that's challenging, that's uncomfortable, that pushes us out of the routine and threatens what we find security in. And our danger is that without that desire, we just simply put up the walls, put up the fences, put up the curtains, and don't look outside to see where the tax gatherers and the sinners might be and whether or not they're eating and drinking or fasting. And we just focus inwardly at the things that keep our structures in place, keep our traditions protected, and keep our hearts comfortable. So we have to question Our desire. Because he says, once we've tasted the old, we no longer have a desire for the new. Think back to when you were a new believer. Think back when you first became active in church life. Everything was new to you. And maybe you were like me in a sponge soaking it up, just trying to gain all that you could. Learn about this new. But then over time, we begin to protect the old. Second word. In this verse that just jumped out at me. Is he says that once we've tasted the old, we don't want the new. And we'll say to ourselves, the old is good enough. Do you remember Jesus' first miracle in Cana? 
in John. In John's Gospel, his first miracle is he turns water into wine. And, and then the head waiter comes out after tasting the miraculous water turned into wine. And he says to the, the people gathered around, to the host and to the guests, and he, to the bride and the bridegroom. And he says, most people serve the best stuff first. And then once the party has taken its effect, you, you go for the cheap stuff, the watered down and the diluted. But not you. For you have saved the new, better stuff for now. And we can't look at this passage and not remember that the new stuff was better than the old stuff at that wedding. There's three words in Greek for good. I know you didn't come this morning for a Greek lesson. But there's three words that could be used and are used in the New Testament for good. The first word that's used is agathos. Agathos is a word that means something that is intrinsically good. There is no evil in it. It is good by its nature. It's the word that's used to describe God himself is good. There's no doubt. There's no question. It is intrinsically good. In this verse, verse 39, that's not the word that he uses. He doesn't say when you've tasted the old, you lose the desire for the new, saying that the old has this intrinsic value, indisputably good. Not that word. There's a second word he could have used. The second word is the word kalos. And kalos has the idea of it is a good product. It is the result of good. So similar to the tree that bears good fruit, it is that idea that it's what naturally is expected to come from the situation. Now, if I were choosing a word that would describe what happens when we see the new coming and we look to the old and we say the old is good, I would want to use kalos. I would want it to be good as a product of all the good that has already taken and transpired. The, this is the natural response that I would come up with. It's not the word. He uses a, another word. And the, the third word that he uses, the meaning of it is more subjective. In fact, it's only used seven times in the New Testament. Twice it's translated good, once in Luke and once in another passage in the New Testament. The other five times, including the other time that it's used in Luke's gospel, we translate it as pleasant or kind. It's a subjective understanding of good. It's like looking at a fancy, beautiful painting of art in the Louvre and looking at it and going, well, that's good. That's a good painting. And then coming home, that might be an agathos or a kalos, and coming home and looking at the finger paint by our grandchild and saying, that is good. It would be this word. It's subjective. The art studios of the world are not going to frame and hang my four-year-old's finger painting on a wall and say it's worth millions of dollars. But to me, it is. It's subjective. So what is this word? 
This word is the word Christos. Christos. Now here's the danger, church. Christos means kind, pleasant, and good. The letters would transliterate chi, rho, eta, tau. Uh, skip to sigma, tau, omicron, sigma. Christos. When Jesus is speaking, we know him now as the Messiah. Hadn't been revealed to them yet. But you know what the word for Messiah is in the Greek? Chi, Rho, Iota, Sigma, Tau, Omega, Sigma. Christos. Here's what jumped off the page at me in the scripture. Jesus warns them. The Messiah warns them. Be careful. Because once you've grown accustomed to the old, your desire will wane for the new. And you will look and you will say, it is Christos. It is good enough. It is almost Christ, but not. It is almost what God desires, but not. He's looking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of his day and saying, you have built a great tradition and it has served well from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, through the kingdoms to today. It is the old, but there is a new coming. There is a no longer do you need the Christos that was good enough then. You need the Christos, the Messiah of today. And you're going to have to turn loose of the old, of the traditions, of of all of the routine, of the rituals. You're going to have to turn loose of that and lay hold of the one thing that matters. And that is Christ. Church, you want to know the other dangerous part about looking at this in the original language? When he says that the wineskin can't hold the new... And that the wineskin will burst. He clarifies with another phrase. He says the wineskin will burst. The wine will go out. And the wineskin. Your translation probably says. Will be ruined. Guess what word is used? Perish. Not necessarily perish in salvation experience. But perish Like the Israelites, who God heard their cry in Egypt. He sent a deliverer named Moses. After ten plagues, they left out at night. And they went led by a fire at night and a cloud by day. God parted the Red Sea. They walked across on dry ground. They got hungry, there was manna. They got hungry again, there was quail. They got thirsty, there was water from a rock. And God said, I'm taking you home. I'm taking you back to the land I promised to your fathers. And they said, okay, let us spy it out and see what it looks like. And 12 spies went in. Two of them saw it. Saw all that God was going to give them and came back and said so. 
Ten of them saw all that it was and the challenges that lay ahead and came back and said so. And when they took the vote, it must have been Baptist back then. They had a business meeting and took a vote. And when they took that vote, it says the nation of Israel sided with the ten. And God pronounced this to them. And so you will remain in the wilderness and you will perish in the wilderness. And only my servant Joshua and Caleb will enter in to the land that I've given them. I like being good enough. It's comfortable being good enough. Think back to the cloth. If the old cloth is our existing structures, routines, and traditions, they worked for a season. Like a favorite shirt. It fits good for a season. But there comes a point in time where even our favorite shirt has to be passed on. We've got to put on a new shirt because there's a hole in the old. What if the holes that are left in our church structures are left when people move on? They're not here anymore. They've either passed on or moved away. And we need to patch those holes. Are we simply trying to patch our old garments? Trying to find new people to fill those holes? Because if that's the application, this scripture says that over time, the new will pull away from the old. And the old will be left in worse shape and the new will be damaged as well. Are we just simply trying to settle? For what's good enough. If we see the people that have left as juice that was placed once in a skin, that served its time, that did well in its season, that produced what it was supposed to produce, but some of that juice has been consumed and gone. And if we just simply want to pour new people into an old system, the only thing that we can put in it. There's more people just like the ones we lost. And if our population is changing, if the people aren't exactly like we are, then we've got to find a new skin. Because if we try to put new into the old, it says it will break. I'm not talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm talking about our systems, our structures, our traditions. The building blocks remain the same. In the illustrations Jesus gave, juice was still there, skin was still there, garments were still there, cloth was still there. Those things don't change. I'm just saying we we can't force new things into old without catastrophic failure. Just trying to be good enough is missing Christ by only one small mark. Remember we started this morning talking about Hezekiah. I know you're saying that was before breakfast by now. We started talking about Hezekiah. Was it truly good when his children were carried away into captivity? The temple and the palace were plundered and their independence was lost? Or was it only good enough during his lifetime because he didn't have to endure any hardship? 
Remember the seed I mentioned that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 12? Unless the seed fall to the ground and sacrifice itself, new growth cannot come. But when personal desires are sacrificed to God, His kingdom produces much fruit. Remember that old proverb? It's not biblical. I can't preach from it. But it resonates in my heart. Blessed are old people who plant trees knowing that they shall never sit in the shade of its foliage. Today, let's resolve to not be good enough. Let's not let that be our battle cry. Let's not choose the easy path of what we're used to, but let's go out and dig some holes. And let's plant some trees under which the shade of which we'll never get to sit and enjoy. But as you plant that tree, envision a young child in ten years swinging from its branches. Envision a teenager in twenty years sitting beneath its shade, leaned against the stump, reading the Scriptures. Envision in your mind planting a sapling today That in 30 years, in 40 years, provides shade to people who just need a stopping point in life. And hear the gospel presented. Church, you've drawn the conclusion. You see where I'm going with this. I love you, church. And I want to see this church in 30 years, in 40 years, in 50 years, in 100 years. Still being the church that it has been for you, but for a new generation. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. But it's words of truth spoken by God who says, and lo, I will never leave you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Are we content To simply be good enough. Or today will our cry be, we want to seek Jesus. We want to do His will. We'll do the hard stuff. Not for our benefit, but for His glory. And for those who are not yet here. Perhaps you're here today. And you're the one of the ones who's not yet here. You're here today and you're hearing the speaking of Jesus who wants to take away sin, who comes to people right where they are in the heartaches of life and provides healing to them. Spiritual healing that cleanses their soul and provides forgiveness and life everlasting. Then today I want to give you that opportunity to respond to Him. But as I look across the pews, I see familiar faces. Individuals who have been a part of this church for decades, some for just days, but most for years. And you don't want to see your church linger in mediocrity. You don't want to be good enough. I want to ask you to commit. I'm not asking for a show of hands. I'm not asking for a movement out of your seat. But I am going to ask you right where you are. To commit your heart to God and say, God, I don't want to be good enough. I want to do what you want us to do. 
I want to lead our people into the promised land. I don't want to be left in the wilderness. I'm not content to be good enough, God. I'm willing to do whatever you ask. And I'm just going to ask you to commit that in your heart where you are right now. In a moment, we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if you need to receive God's gift of forgiveness, I want to invite you to come and respond. I'll be glad to share with you how you can know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. If you're here today and you want to be a part of a team that's changing the landscape of this church in the future and you want to join, then I want to receive you for that as well. Let's pray and ask God to move. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. That God, while you make us as people who sometimes just want to be good enough, you desire so much more for us. God, I thank you that you spoke to us words of encouragement that while staying the same can be contenting, change can be hard, but you promise us that you lead us through that change and you walk with us in that change. God, help us to seek you that we wouldn't simply strive for good enough but that we would strive to please you speak to our hearts in these next few moments god we pray it in jesus name amen the preceding message was presented by first baptist church in manny louisiana for more information about a relationship with jesus christ or about the church including contact information go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Thank you for listening and may God bless you.